please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles on the back table by the offering box. Or you can always connect to the Wi-Fi, if you will, and download a fake Bible on your phone. If you... Not a fake Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. I guess I'm lo-fi. I, I, like the, I like to have the actual book in hand, right? So, uh, so starting today and lasting through the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be examining the portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount known as the Lord's Prayer. Yeah? I think it's uh, very fitting that we begin the new year with a new series that covers such a topic that is as near and dear to the heart of Christ as prayer. Um, And just so we're on the same page, uh, simply put, the most basic definition I can give prayer, to pray is to talk to God. Now, it's more than mere meditation. It's more than passive reflection. Prayer is when we address God the Father in the name of Christ as our mediator through the enabling grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Who, who would have thought that prayer is a Trinitarian event? Amen? <laughs> the Bible, um, if we were to read it cover to cover this morning, which would take us just a little bit of time. If we were to do so, though, the Bible records 650 individual prayers. The Apostle Paul, he mentions prayer 41 times throughout his New Testament letters. Uh, In the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus himself is recorded praying on 25 different occasions. He healed people through prayer. Jesus cast out demons by praying, as Tim Keller writes in his book entitled Prayer, which is on the shelf in our cafe, available for, for sale. I would recommend it to you. As Tim Keller writes, Jesus prayed often and regularly with fervent cries and tears. Sometimes he prayed all night. The Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him while he was praying. At his transfiguration of divine glory, he prayed. When Jesus faced his greatest crises, he did so with prayer. On the night before he died, we we read of him praying, crying out for his disciples, praying for the church. In the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. And finally, Jesus died praying. On the cross. It is simply impossible to disregard the central role that prayer had in Jesus' life. Consider this as well. And I've I've mentioned this before, but it's worth stating again. Throughout Jesus' three years of public ministry... Throughout the three years when he spent every day with, with the crowds and the 72 and the 12 and the 3... Jesus never once, not once, taught his disciples how to preach a sermon. He never once taught them how to write a book or to manage a church budget or how to strategize a a growth campaign. He taught them none of that. He taught them to pray. Now, this should give us a big clue as to the weight that God puts on prayer. I studied cinematography in college, and it was always obvious to me the facets of production that my professors were you know, most valued, right? Because they spent the most 
time on the subjects of the craft that they most valued. And the fact that Jesus explicitly taught his disciples to pray, in addition to the central role that prayer had in his personal life, we have to conclude that prayer is very near and very dear to the heart of God. God wants us to pray. Would you follow along as I read our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 6? I'm going to start reading in verse 5. I'm going to go through verse 9. This is Jesus with his disciples and the crowds surrounding all around him. Right in the middle of his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke these words to them. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Teach us this passage. Holy Spirit, convict us using this passage. Conform our lives to the pattern of this passage. For your word is life. Your truth is life. Help us to see it. Help us to salivate for it. And we know that when we ask these things according to your will, you not only hear us, but you answer us. We praise you for the confidence that this prayer will be answered today in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three very simple and very important things that Jesus teaches us, uh, teaches us about prayer in this passage. And if you're a note taker, these are going to be my three points for the rest of our time. Number one... Prayer is a defining mark of God's people. Number two, prayer is not about drawing attention to ourselves, but giving our full attention to God. And number three, prayer is a right that is given to us by God that we should embrace with reverence toward God. I will repeat those as we go along, so if you didn't get those all written down, that's all right. We also post these sermons online. <laughs> Number one, prayer is a defining mark of God's people. Just notice Jesus' choice of words in verses 5, 6, and 7. And when you pray, verse 5, you see it? And, or, but when you pray, verse 6, 
Verse 7. And when you pray. Do we see it? As far as Jesus is concerned, the prayer life of his followers is not a matter of if, but when. Think with me about a, a marathoner. Right, a marathon runner, a marathoner, right? The idea of a marathoner who does not run is completely nonsensical. It is illogical, it doesn't connect. So is the idea of a Christian who does not talk to God. Prayer is to the Christian what running is to a marathoner. Now, most Americans readily admit that along with going to to church and and reading your Bible, prayer is in the top three category of Christian activities, right? Prayer is, is, is an obligation, if you will. The earliest Christians, if we were to go to the book of Acts and read through chapters one and two, the earliest Christians knew this. They devoted, it says, themselves to prayer. Paul told the the Philippians, worry about nothing, pray about everything. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, he said. The fact is, given these passages and given what we know about Jesus' life, we know That as Christians, we are to be a people of prayer. And yet, the 3,000 pound elephant in the room is that every single one of us struggles to pray. We all, in some way, shape, or form, struggle to pray. I guarantee if we were to go around this room and ask, all of us would admit that our prayer life is not what it ought to be or what we would even really like it to be. Why is that Do you ever wonder? It could be that some of us are intimidated by prayer because we we really don't know what to say. Don't really know how to pray. We we might be afraid that we're, we're doing it wrong. No one has ever told us that praying to God can actually be as simple as simply talking to a friend. There aren't any explicit rules attached to prayer. Today's passage is going to help address that. We can talk to God as if we're talking to a friend. Not, maybe, maybe, maybe some of us don't pray because we're intimidated and we need to know that. When you pray, keep that in mind. Another reason why so many of us might struggle to pray is because, yeah, it takes time. It requires some patience. It requires some discipline. It is true that a healthy prayer life is hard won. But so is everything else in life that actually matters. Maintaining a marriage, raising children, holding down a job, following a diet. Happy New Year. When it comes to blaming our lack of prayer on a lack of discipline, I don't really buy that. Because even the most undisciplined among us is disciplined in the ways we want to be. You're very disciplined about Netflix every night at 9 p.m., right? I know I am. A lack of prayer really boils down to a lack of desire and or a lack of desperation. I wish we could camp out on those two words for the rest of our time, but we cannot. We will pray, yeah, sometimes we will. 
maybe on our commute to work, but only most of us, especially in America, most of us will only pray after we have exhausted all of our own efforts, right? After we've rolled up our sleeves and attempted to do everything we can about it, hardly anyone goes to the Lord first before anything else. We'll pray, but most of the time it's because we've literally just, we have nowhere else to turn. Now God does graciously and sovereignly use calamity in our lives such as cancer, such as untimely untimely death of a loved one. He uses those things, yes, to draw us to our knees. We ought to pray when we have nowhere else to turn. Of course, what an amazing place to which we can turn when we have nowhere else to turn. But if we could only just see how desperate we are when we don't feel desperate. How desperate our souls actually are when we feel like we've got life covered and we're doing things well in our own steam. Theologically speaking, that is when we are in dire need of prayer. Oh, that I wouldn't need calamity to strike to draw me to my knees. That I would simply draw near to God because He has opened the way for me to come back to Him through Jesus. What a privilege. God has sent His Son to suffer and to die so that through Him, you and I can draw near that we might come to Him in prayer. In spite of our sin, we've been granted access to all of God in whose presence, the psalmist writes, is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Do we believe that? I barely believe that. I'm confessing this to you. If I believed that God's right hand was joy and pleasure forevermore, you bet I would be, you wouldn't be able to pry me out of prayer. God, help my unbelief. Lastly, it could be said that so many of us struggle to pray because we struggle to believe that our prayers accomplish anything. Right? So often, so Often it seems that my prayers don't work. Maybe you've prayed for an unbelieving family member who still has yet to come to Christ. Maybe you've prayed for a sick friend to be healed who ended up dying. Maybe you've prayed for some sort of provision. You've asked for a specific job or or an apartment or even a friend in a season of loneliness, but it felt like there was no result Are we not honest with ourselves in saying that sometimes it feels as if our prayers don't work? Another frustration is, well, God's going to do his will anyway. Why do I need to pray? He's going to do what he's going to do. Why pray? Friends, that theology is for the toilet. That is terrible theology. Because there are things, and we could make this empirically proven through Scripture right now, there are things that God has willed to come to pass that will only come to pass through prayer. R.C. Sproul writes, not because prayer in any way changes God, 
Not because your prayer in any way changes God, but it absolutely changes things according to God's good, holy, eternal counsel and sovereign will. There are things that God has ordained would come to pass through your prayers. That's, that ought to be mind-blowing. Who is lost in your life that you are to be praying for? That God wants to answer your prayer. You haven't even prayed yet. He's waiting. The first thing te- uh, Jesus teaches us in this passage is that prayer is a defining mark of his people. God's people are a people of prayer. It serves as the primary vehicle by which we can relate to him through his word. Prayer serves as the primary vehicle by which we draw near to God. That is the function of prayer. And now Jesus, through the rest of our passage, he teaches us about the form of prayer. Point number two, prayer is not about drawing attention to ourselves. Oh, let's get this in our head. But it is about giving our full attention to him. Let's look at the first half of that sentence. Prayer is not about drawing attention to ourselves. Isn't it telling that Jesus begins to teach us how to pray by firstly teaching us not how, how not to pray? Right? And when you pray, verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now he's referring, he's referring to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. In Jesus' day, devout Jews would have three times of public prayer throughout the day, morning, afternoon, and evening. It would have been no different for us, you know, to, to walk into Spoon and to, and to see a, a group of people praying, such as Susan Grassy and Hazel Hall and Rachel Medina on a, on a Wednesday morning at 7. That's a plug. It would have been no different, right? We're, they're, playing, they're praying in a, in a public sphere. What Jesus is not condemning in the second half of verse 5, you need to hear this. Jesus is not condemning the location of our prayers. We ought to pray in spoon. We ought to pray at work. We ought to pray on the street corners. What Jesus is condemning is what the Pharisees were doing. They were being strategic about the location precisely so that they could be seen by more people. That they could appear holy and devoted and reverent to the people around them. Because all, because above all else, what they worshipped was the respect of men. And how horrifying. That Jesus says, and they've received their reward. That their whole goal was to earn the praise of mere mortals. And they got that, but they won't get any more. God, save me. Jesus is not condemning the location of our prayers. He's condemning the motivation. Prayer is not about drawing attention to ourselves. And yet, how many times in my shame have I used prayer to impress Christians I admire? 
by using fancy words and causing my voice to inflect. I've done that. How many times, to my shame, have I been sitting in a restaurant and I have been more concerned that the people around me see me and my family pray than I actually am about giving thanks for the food that I'm about to eat? There are other ways that our prayers can be pridefully motivated. Maybe you're a person who literally has to open his or her mouth and pray at every single church function. You can't even handle the thought of not being one of the people to pray because you are such a blessing to the rest of us. (laughs) On one front, that's true. I'm not trying to draw a mockery. You are a blessing to us. Sometimes just shut up. Amen? Give this to the Lord. This is your version. If that is you, this is your version of praying at the street corner that that all would see you. Maybe you're the person who refuses to pray out loud because you don't want to sound silly. This sounds humble. But in actuality, it's the same heart posture of the Pharisees. Only instead of promoting yourself, you avoid praying to preserve yourself. It is self-centered at its core. Give this to the Lord if that's you. Ask him to give you a voice for prayer. On Wednesday night when we gather, we want to hear you pray. It will bless us. We do this every time we tell someone we'll be praying for them when we actually have no intention of praying for them. You've done that. I've done that. In the moment, we allow someone to think that we're kind of holy and we have a regularly developed prayer life and we say, yes, brother, I will be praying for you. Unless you stop what you're doing right then and set an alert on your phone times 10 and write something in your pocket and post something to your, your, you know, your dashboard, you won't do it. You know it. So why do we keep telling people that we'll pray for them when we're not going to? That is our version of standing at a street corner and saying, look at me. It's really not too dissimilar from Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who brought all of their offering in front of all of the church. Look at how generous we are. And they, they had, and then the Holy Spirit struck them down for their irreverence. They were blaspheming lying to the face of the church and before God. Prayer is not about drawing attention to ourselves. It is not about impressing other people, as Jesus makes clear in verse 5. Look, it's not even about impressing God, as Jesus continues in verse 7. And when you pray, I'm going to keep emphasizing that when, when you pray, brother or sister, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the pagan non-Jews. Do not heap up empty phrases, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. The real and living and loving God of the Bible does not need you nor I to convince him to listen to us. Because of the eloquence of our speech or the repetition of our words. You do not have to be a scholarly theologian to pray. You can simply be like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9 who cried out, I believe, Lord, but now help my unbelief. And that can be your prayer for the entire night on Wednesday night. And we would say, Hallelujah! 
You don't have to throw yourself into some sort of mantric frenzy like a lot of churches do these days in order to get God's attention. That's more similar to the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Where we pray going on and on and on. Jesus, 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 Jesus. We whip ourselves, some of us, into this sort of frenzy, repeating the same words and phrases like some sort of incantation. We don't have to do that. We're free because of Christ. We don't shoulder the burden of trying to convince God to hear us. You open your mouth in the silence of a whisper or think it in your head and he hears you. The the blood of Jesus has ushered that prayer to him. Thank you. Sometimes I'm just desperate. I've been desperate many times this year. And I, in my office, I'll I'll, I'll go, God, what, I'll, I'll almost even ask this, what can I do to get your attention? That's the voice of the enemy. You and I don't have to do anything. We have his full and undivided attention because we are washed in the blood. Thank you. Amen, brother. Fear not, little flock. Luke 12, 32. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't fear. I need to write that on my eyelids. (laughs) Prayer is not about drawing God's attention to us. Verse 7. It is about giving our full undivided, if we can, Lord willing, attention to him. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now again, I got to say this, Jesus' primary concern here isn't about location. You don't have to have a private bedroom. In order to pray. That would have been problematic for his homeless followers. They would have had no, I, I don't even say that jokingly. It's not about the location. It is about giving your focus. Your full attention to God. In, in a home with four kids. When my wife needs to have a word with me. She will often ask me to come into the room, into a private room, a quiet room, to use Jesus' word in verse 6, a secret room. Not because there's anything special about that room, but because it's more conducive to what? Focus. After all, what is the use of communication if it lacks concentration? Our world is filled with frivolous communication, which we are not paying attention to. We barely process the words that we post online. And we look like a bunch of idiots because of it. Amen? What is the use of communication if it lacks concentration? We ought to just keep our mouths shut and our fingers broken. Or in our pockets to be less violent. 
Without a doubt, though, this is the very reason why Jesus would so often go to pray alone, in seclusion, separated from the noise. If only we would take a cue from Jesus, carve out 15 minutes to go diligently to a quiet place as if our lives depended on it, to the corner of your basement, to a reading room at the library if you don't have a quiet room in the house, to a secluded park bench. If only for that 15 minutes we would turn off our dang phones or try to stop squeezing our prayer time into the rush hour stressful commute to work. That is not undivided attention. When was the last time, I'm going to ask you this directly, I asked the same thing to me, I'm not holier than thou, when was the last time that you actually gave God your entire, your full attention? Try to, it is, in the 21st century American mind, it is a nearly impossible task to do that for even five minutes. No wonder the church feels so powerless. We have his ear and we hear his heart in prayer. Do we not believe the promise of Hebrews 11.6? Do we not believe the promise in our passage this morning, Matthew 6.6? He rewards those who draw near to him. The reward is much better than many of us realize and I'm not going to camp out on a lot today. I can tell you this. Nine times out of ten, it's not what you ask for. It's way better. Ten times out of ten. Because it's the face of God himself. And it's his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to get to that a little bit in the end. The reward is that we are made in line with the triune God who holds the universe together. And I can can promise you this. That is a better reward than any of us could ever fathom. Prayer is not about drawing attention to ourselves, nor is it about convincing God to listen to us. Prayer is about giving our full attention to God. I would challenge you, as we walk through this four-week series in the Lord's Prayer, fight for even 15 minutes, 15 minutes a day. Give the Lord your absolutely undivided attention. Listen. Have your Bible open. Say, I believe, help my unbelief, and then wait. Number three, hallelujah for this. Prayer is a right that is given to us by God that we should embrace with reverence toward God. The key words that I'm really trying to land on here are right and reverence, and it's the first verse of the Lord's Prayer that shows us why this is true. Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this, our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why in Jesus' efforts does he teach us to pray our Father? He tells us to address his Father as our Father. The answer is simple. It's because if you belong to Christ... 
That is exactly what God is to you. He is your Father. Paul writes in Galatians 3, we should be able to remember this from just a few weeks ago, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. What a fulfillment of that promise. Heirs according to promise. When we were children, we were enslaved to the principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And because we are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, which spurs us to cry, Abba, Father. John 1.12 tells us that if you have placed your hope in the name of Jesus, Jesus has given you the right of a child of God. What a word. If you have kids, I'm sure that this is true for you or even a niece or nephew or a dog, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if, you, uh, uh, if, if, if you have a family of some sort, I, sh- I, I hope what's true for me is true for you. Apart from my wife, there are only four people on the planet for whom I will stop everything and listen to them. I mean, I will shut the whole show down to zero if I have to, and it is my kids. Unlike anyone else on the planet, they have an absolutely open invitation into my bedroom, into my office, into my entire life. They will never not have my ear, and I will never not give them my heart. And this inalienable right, say that three times, this inalienable right is theirs because they are my blood-born children. And Jesus is telling us, as we address God as our Father, that if you and I, sinners, silly people as we are sometimes, if you and I love our children like this, how much more does the infinitely loving and wonderful Heavenly Father love us? How much more does he bid you to come, even when he's in his office, so to speak? Come in. You don't have to call first. You don't have to knock. Walk right in. And the amazing truth of God's providential mind, his sovereign mind in verse 8, is that he knows what you want. He knows what you, he knows your truest need before you even cross the threshold into that office. He knows your truest need. We see dimly. We often get our wants and our needs all piled up and mashed up together. He gives us what we need, which is infinitely more glorious. Because we are his blood-bought children, adopted by name, he has given us his ear. So why not cast your cares at his feet? Every moment of every day. When you're afraid. Gosh, when I'm anxious, I'm riddled with anxiety. God, help me. Instead of going to try and solve the problem with my own efforts first, God, bring me to my knees. 
that I would surrender it to you. Why not when you're feeling depressed or lonely? Why not vent your frustrations? He's given us his heart. Why not ask for his guidance, his wisdom, his strength? Scripture promises that he will give us these things. And your sickness may very well be healed. Your financial situation may improve. Your husband may repent. Your circumstances may change. But they may not. Like they may not. Things could even get worse for you on the outset. According to our eye. Nevertheless, we cry out. We come to him as a son or a daughter. We tell him what we would like to see happen. And when we cry out, our father, we can come in confidently. And then when we pray, hallowed be your name, do you know what that is? It's us asking him that he would make his name set apart in our hearts. Hallowed be your name. Make your name holy and high and lifted up in my heart that I would know You are the sovereign one. In your hand is everything. You work all things out according to the counsel of your will. That's what we are reminding ourselves of. That's what we are calling upon when we say, Hallowed be your name. The Holy One of Heaven, the Great I Am, Alpha Omega, beginning and end, we have the privilege of drawing near to the Hallowed One. It is a privileged through the atoning blood of Jesus. And as we pray, our Father, hallowed be your name, we are admitting, I see dimly. I want this person to be healed. I want this specific job. But I see dimly. You have the infinite, complex, impossibly high vantage point of all of the cosmos. You see how everything is working together for my good and for your glory. So nevertheless, you are greater and wiser. You know, the be- you know what's best in any given situation, which means then ultimately as we follow the Lord's prayer, we're going to seek his will above our own. Because he promises, he promises, he promises, though you don't understand why your friend is dying, He will work that out for the good of your heart, for your Christ-likeness, for his ultimate glory. Tim Keller writes in his book, Prayer, that God will only ever give you, when you come to him as father in prayer, God will only ever give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. What an, what an astounding promise. That God knows my heart, he knows my needs so much that as I walk into that office to cry out, Abba Father, our Father, hallowed be your name, that he is able to hear through what I'm asking for that I want and he's able to give me what I most need. He is always going to give you what you would have asked for if you could have his vantage point. How wonderful. That does not make the financial crisis or the loss of a friend or uh, an unrepentant husband, that does not make it necessarily easier. It makes it glorified.
when we think of it this way, why on earth would we come to him and pray, my will be done? When his will is always right, it is always on perfect time, it is always good.